Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Father, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you today. What a privilege that is. And we do stand amazed that we have access to the very throne of God because of what Jesus Christ has provided for us. Now, Lord, open our hearts. Let us receive the teaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, the holiest season of the year is fast approaching. Just four weeks from now, we'll have the opportunity to gather together, and hopefully there'll be huge crowds packed into our auditorium as we celebrate this wonderful holy season of Easter together. And with its arrival, the best news that has ever been recorded in human history comes flooding back to us. When it was uttered in the words, He is not here, He has risen, just as He said. You know, those words forever changed the human equation. Those words forever changed human existence. No longer could man be thought of as a whim of fate, or a cosmic joke, or a chemical accident in an otherwise cold universe. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the good news that we get to celebrate in just a few short weeks, changed all that. It put a wholly different picture on all of life, on my life, your life, on my death, your death, on my purpose, and my future, and your purpose, and your future. The good news, the good news is that there is a God who is there. And the good news is that God cares for us. And the good news is that He possesses the power to get involved in our life that will bring meaning and purpose and future to it. That brings me to a word this morning that I would like to talk to you about as we look this morning in this new series we call The Good News. And that is the word transcendence. Now transcendence literally means to surpass or to go beyond a limit. In fact, until recently, the use of transcendence is not a word that you would use in everyday vocabulary. It was used in institutions of higher philosophical and theological learning in which students were introduced to the distinction between the God who is above the created world, that is, the transcendent God, and the God who is active within the world, that is, an imminent God. But today, the word transcendence is taking on a more popular meaning. It's taking on a more personal color as it relates to what gives my life meaning. Theologian John Stott calls transcendence a word of protest. A word of protest, he says, against science, against secularism, against materialism, against meism. Modern man, he says, is realizing that these things leave the human spirit short. I want to offer to you three modern voices today that speak to the issue of transcendence. First, the social critic Theodore Rozak. Uh, in a number of articles recently, he has castigated science for its, reduction, for its reductionist assault on human life. That science would arrogantly claim to be able to explain everything, 
and anything. Science, he says, and I love these words, is not nearly spacious enough for man. Science alone causes the personhood of humanity to shrivel. It cannot explain everything. It cannot answer every question. There are things about man that goes beyond science. Gail Shee is another voice for transcendence. In her best-selling book, Pathfinders, she lists what she calls the top ten hallmarks of well-being. That is, for a healthy life. In her book, Pathfinders, at the top of that list of healthy traits of people, she lists as number one, transcendence. People, she writes, of well-being find meaning and an involvement with something beyond themselves. Way beyond themselves. Finally, and parents listen to this, because this is William DeMond, the professor of education at Brown University, as he addresses meism. And Arch McIntosh over at Pulaski Academy put me on to Dr. DeMond. He writes this, he says, When we teach children to concern themselves first and foremost with their own sense of self, we not only encourage self-centeredness, but we also fail to present a more inspiring and developmentally constructive alternative. And that is that they should concern themselves with things beyond the self and above the self. Now those are modern voices calling for transcendence, but we have a voice that has been calling for transcendence for thousands of years. In fact, this morning you hold this ancient document in your very hands which calls, which, whose message is a call to transcendence. And from its pages comes this message and comes a personal mission for anyone who would seek to take it up. And it's a mission that goes way beyond me. It's a message that goes much higher and further than anything that this world can offer. It goes way beyond my wants and my rights and my comfort. It's a message that goes way beyond more stuff. Having more things and building a bigger estate. It's a message that goes way beyond what the Generation Xers are feeling, and that is that life is somehow some kind of cruel joke foisted upon them. It goes way beyond popular culture. It goes way beyond scientific explanations. It goes way beyond the fact that everybody is doing it. The Bible is a transcendent book with a transcendent message. What we find when we open the Bible in its pages is good news because we find a living God who cares for us. And a living God who has a will that goes way beyond us, but whose will for us is the only answer to our lives. It's the only answer that gives real meaning and satisfaction to our life. Call it good news and transcendence. And this morning, I want to illustrate that by just taking a brief look at a moment in the life of Jesus, and it's found in Mark chapter 14. So if you would, you might turn there with me, but in Mark 14, we come to a place called Gethsemane and a moment of transcendence. Let me begin reading these events as they leave the Last Supper and they move into this garden area, and Jesus begins to talk to His disciples about His impending death, starting in verse 26. It says, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away 
Because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that you yourself this very night before a cock crows twice shall three times deny me. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing too. Well, as we begin this kind of moment, it's pretty easy to see that Peter has a pretty high view of himself, doesn't he? He's oftentimes like you and me, he's all caught up in the moment. They've just celebrated the first Lord's Supper and Jesus has talked to him and broken bread with them. They've sung a song, now they go into this garden experience. And he sees himself in this emotional moment as a fortress of devotion and love and commitment to Jesus Christ. In fact, even after Jesus quotes the scripture from the prophet Zechariah, saying you will all fall away, presents this holy writ to Peter and the disciples, Peter says in verse 29, notice, I will not do that. And then again in verse 31, I will not. He's pretty confident of himself. He has no sense whatsoever that in quoting the Scripture, what Jesus is trying to get through to him and talking about his death and his resurrection is that there are transcendent forces and purposes that go way beyond yourself, Peter, that you have no control over and that you will be swept away with. You think you can stand. But there is transcendent forces at work here that go way beyond your puny will. In fact, Jesus, if you notice, He enshrines Peter's attitude by uh, employing the symbol of a rooster to counter his boast of self-confidence. That's kind of an interesting concept because when someone boasts like Peter today, we carry that symbolism forward 2,000 years and we say he's what? Cocky. We say he is cocksure of himself. Of course, the irony is, is employing the rooster, the cock, who struts around and crows in the barnyard today, is that tomorrow he'll be on your dinner table, right? And Peter's boastful, I wills are headed for the same downfall. Because he has no sense of what's really taking place here. He's caught up in his own self. But now I want you to listen to this. The real tragedy here is not Peter's boastful and arrogant statements, but that his life at this moment lacks a capacity. Listen, it lacks a capacity to embrace any other will but his own. He's not looking beyond himself to a transcendent cause and will. Peter in this moment is looking only to himself. And that is a recipe for a life that comes up short. I love the story of Yogi Berra, who was uh, catching, it's in the ninth inning, and he was catching for the Yankees, and the batter comes up and digs in. It's two outs. There's a man on third. The score is tied, and the batter crosses himself and then draws a cross on the plate. And Berra just takes his mitt and just kind of wipes the cross away, looks up at the batter, and he says, listen, why don't we just let God watch the game? You know, in this moment, what I find Peter doing in all these confident self-assertions, I will do this, I will not do that. He's just saying, stand back, God. 
stand back transcendent purposes and will. Just watch. Let me play the game on my own. And you know, God does watch people like that. He does stand back and let them look to themselves rather than look to Him. And He sees us as we seek to buy our way into happiness. He sees us go through a lifetime seeking to justify our transgressions and our immoralities. He stands back and He watches us curse our fate when life doesn't give us what we think we can will it to give us. He simply watches when we miss the best in life when we sell out for the expedient. And then He comes to the end of our lives and He just stands there and watches us as now at the end of our lives we have unconquerable questions where once we thought we had cocky answers. God will watch if you want Him to. This is what happens in us when God just watches when we have no other capacity for a will greater than our own. Now I want you to note in this passage, Jesus shows us a better way. I mean, here's the God of the universe in man form, but He does just the opposite from Peter in this crisis moment. Rather than looking to Himself, He looks beyond Himself. And that's what we're introduced to in Mark 14, starting in verse 32. It says, And they came to a place named Gethsemane, and He said to His disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And He took with Him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And He said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and watch. Now you've got to ask the question, why is Jesus so distressed and troubled in this moment? I believe it's because for the first time in His life, in His whole life, from His birth through His baptism to right now, this is the first time in Jesus' life when His will is reluctant to do God's will. Suddenly, we, we see the emergence of Jesus' will outside the Father's. You know, maybe you thought because Jesus is the God-man, these are just one and the same. But, but we know they're not one and the same because later He'll say, not my will, but thine be done. There's two wills operating here. They've been one all this time. But suddenly in this moment, Jesus is finding Himself reluctant to do this will. And He's not sure He wants to follow through. Now, it's not that Jesus is caught off guard about the moment that's about to come, the hour before Him. All of Jesus' life, He knew He would come to this moment. There would be an hour where He'd be called upon to render Himself up for the sins of the world on a cross. It was to this end that He was committed. It was to this end that He was publicly baptized as He coronated the beginning of His ministry. And for three years, He had marched to this moment. But now listen. Listen, we all should know, hopefully, that committing ourselves to God and His will is one thing. Following through on doing God's will is quite another thing. And I want you to know that you have a God-man Jesus who understands that. Because He's been there. He's right here at this moment. He's sitting there, and though He knows what the right thing is to do, He's not sure He wants to do it. And so His soul is grieved to the very point of death. You know, it's one thing to stand in a church and vow your lives to one another in marriage. <laughs> it's another thing to finish married. Right? It's one thing to get excited over that little bundle of joy in your hands called a child. It's another thing to live and die 
daily for the life of that child. So when they leave your home, they can turn to you and say, I lacked nothing because of your commitment to me. It's one thing to be in a worship service and get all excited about dealing with sin in our lives. It's another thing to leave this auditorium and deal with it. Those are two wholly different things. And Jesus understood that clearly. And here in His humanity, at a most critical moment, we see His reluctance to follow through. And it's agony for Him. Look at verse 35. And so He went a little further beyond them and He fell to the ground and He began to pray that, it might, that if it were possible, this hour might pass by. And He was saying, Abba, Father. Now that's a very great term of endearment, but if I can translate it or paraphrase it, it would be, oh, Dad. Just like we pray in critical moments. Oh, Dad, if there is any other way, can, I know all things are possible for you. Have you prayed that before? <laughs> I know all things are possible. Somehow, let me get around this one. There's got to be another, in your infinite wisdom, there's got to be another way than this way. Let it pass from me. Let's come up with another plan. Don't make me do this. But then he renders himself up to God when he says, yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. In this critical and defining moment, Jesus doesn't go to himself. Jesus goes beyond himself and a transformation occurs. Now, this text is mysterious because it doesn't tell us how all this came about. We just see Jesus move out of the garden in power. But somewhere in this prayer, in this agony, in this struggle, in this wrestling of wills, Jesus moves from an impasse to a breakthrough concerning His will and God's will. And as I said, though our text does not explain the details, we do know how it occurred. He got before God in prayer and worked it through till the point came in the mystery of this prayerful moment. Jesus was somehow able to go beyond Himself and embrace a calling that was bigger than himself, that he could submit himself do, to and not do it with just reluctance, as somehow we often do, but to do it with eagerness as we find the events that follow demonstrate. Now I want you to know, if Jesus as a man needed his will to be transformed by prayer, and by struggling, and by wrestling through it, if the greatest things in Jesus' life had to be embraced, not because he could will it, but because he had to fall before his father and wrestle through it, if Jesus had to do that, if he had to go to Gethsemane to go beyond himself, to wrestle with complying with a transcendent will beyond his own, then what about us? Because you know what? Some of the greatest callings on your life, some of the greatest spiritual experiences that are before you, you cannot just say, I'll do it. Because I want to tell you right now, you can't. They're there, and they're awesome, and they're high and holy callings, but you only get there by going the same route that Jesus Christ went. By wrestling through the circumstances of your life, by going beyond something that was bigger than comfort, bigger than pleasure, bigger than my schedule, and bigger than myself. You can only go there through Gethsemane. I want you to know that there are some marks that follow in the trail of a Christian who's living a transcendent life 
like the one we see modeled before us in Jesus Christ. I want to give you three of those marks. First of all, I want you to know that a transcendent life thinks big. And it thinks big in two areas. First, it thinks beyond this life. If I live a transcendent life, then on a daily basis, I think beyond this life. What's on my mind, just in the everyday discourse of life and management of life, is I'm thinking about eternity. And I'm thinking about judgment. And I'm thinking about rewards. And I'm thinking about standing before Jesus Christ and what eternity is all about. I don't see myself as a mere mortal. If I think as a transcendent being, I think of myself as an immortal being. A person, as Paul says in Philippians 3, whose citizenship is in heaven, who one day will have this body of humility transformed by Jesus Christ into the body of His glory. Now think big like that. And I don't see these affairs of life as little things. I see the affairs of life as part of a movement of the kingdom of God that will crescendo in His second coming. That's how I see life. I think big like that. I secondly, I think above this life. Like in Colossians 3.2 where Paul says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. And so on a daily basis, as I think on the things of Scripture, the calling of God, the priorities of God, my life changes. It doesn't matter what the crowd does. Because I've set my mind on bigger things. I choose things that the crowd wouldn't normally do. I set priorities that my friends wouldn't necessarily set. I set a schedule and a schedule of interest and involvements that those who are simply concerned about their own comfort and how much stuff they can acquire, they can't understand it. I think above this life. You see, a transcendent life thinks big. And, it, and if you were to strip away and get into the heart of that transcendent life, what they're thinking about the most is the glory of God. The glory of God. Secondly, I want you to know a transcendent life will be marked by moments of holy crisis. Let me tell you what I mean by holy crisis. It's wrestling with your life before God and what you should do with your life and what places you should place your life in and what your time commitment should be and where the investments should be. But those are not easy moments. Those are moments of holy crisis where you have to wrestle it through to get to the other side. And as you wrestle it through, I want to guarantee you something. There will be moments where there will be this agonizing break with the world's priorities and interest and timing. That's part of a transcendent life. I experienced one of those at a very early age in my Christian life. I was just finishing graduating. I'd just gotten married because of the influence of a church on my life. I was thinking about going to seminary. In fact, Sherrod and I had just come to the place where we said, let's do it. There was no job necessarily on the horizon, but I thought, no, maybe seminary is the way to go. I was still in that tender moment when one day at church, a businessman leaned forward and he said, I'd like to visit with you after church. And so we walked outside and he began to unfold for me this unbelievable opportunity. The son that he had wanted to give his estate to had, had kind of gone wayward. And he said, I've been watching you, and I would like for you to be my personal assistant for the next couple of years. And I will pay you X amount of money, and in those days, it was big money. And I want you to travel with me to my companies in Ireland, and in Europe, and in Australia, and in California, and learn the business. 
And after you learn the business, I'm going to give the business to you if you want it. Let me tell you, that was so overpowering to me. And I thought, is this guy playing a joke on me? So I went and talked to a couple of friends in the church who knew this man intimately, and they looked at me and they said, I can assure you that this man is legitimate and he would not make this offer unless he meant it. So suddenly on the one hand, I had this opportunity of a lifetime right at the same moment I had rendered up my life to go to seminary. And let me tell you, there was some wrestling to do. It was a challenge on my life. It was one of those defining moments. And there have been several of those over the course of a lifetime where finally, after coming out the other end, to stand before this man with all that he was offering me and saying, no, no, I am going to break with the world. And I'm going to choose to render myself according to the call that I believe that Jesus Christ has on my life. Some of you maybe are facing moments like that right now. But I want you to know a transcendent life will be marked at points. If it's really going to go to the higher ground and experience the best God has for you, there will be moments of holy crisis that you will have to fight through and there will be agonizing breaks with this world. But on the other side of it is the greatest portion of God's will for you. Thirdly, and probably the most important mark of a transcendent life, a transcendent life will do what others cannot find the will or the courage to do. You know, there are many Christians who are like Peter, who have a host of good intentions about doing God's will, about being faithful to Him, about dealing with sin, about serving, about giving their lives away. And like Peter, they are followers of Jesus Christ. Because Peter was a follower of Jesus Christ. But I also want you to know that one of their characteristics of their life is like Peter also. And that is, they are followers of Christ, but they are not followers through of Christ. That was what Peter was. He was a follower, but in this moment, not a follower through. In the critical moments of life, you always seem to come up short and fall away. A transcendent life is a life that has looked beyond itself and has wrestled successfully with embracing God's will and then follows through on that and others who are like Peter stand around and are amazed that you did what you did, but which they don't have the will or the courage to do. It might be in lifestyle choices you make. It might be in career choices. It might be how you hung in your marriage while everybody else bailed out. And they can't understand that, but somehow you've wrestled it through and you've demonstrated a transcendent life that they wish they could have followed, but they have no follow through because there's no Gethsemane in their life. Let me mention two areas where follow through manifests itself in a transcendent believer. First, in the troubles one faces. When I look at some of the people in our body who I would call transcendent Christians, when they face troubles in their life, here's what is a mark of their life. And that is that even in the midst of the trouble, they tend to focus on the positives for God, not the negatives of my particular situation. Their language is not about their pain. Their language is not about blame. 
Their language is not about why me, but their language is how God can use the pain to teach them about life, to press them closer to His sufficiency, or to give them the opportunity in that trouble and around those circumstances to learn how to minister to others who are in like situations. That's part of their transcendent perspective. Trouble to them is God's tool to shape them or use them for His glory, not His curse over them. So it's not poor me. It's the glory of God. Paul saw his thorn in the flesh, and we don't know what it was, but whatever it was, he didn't see it as a curse, though it troubled him greatly. He saw it as God's way of keeping him from exalting himself. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, he says this, he says, Most gladly I will boast about my thorn and about the weakness that it brings that the power of Christ may dwell in me and may be manifested in my weaknesses. You see, a transcendent Christian sees life that way, sees troubles that way, positives in adversity, not the negative. In Christ, there's something bigger than my pain, bigger than my troubled marriage, bigger than my rough schedule, bigger than my trouble. There's a kingdom to live for. And I want to find my way up to that higher ground so that I can serve Him and exploit these things for the glory of God. That's the trail of a transcendent Christian. But I want you to know, secondly, a transcendent Christian doesn't just demonstrate this kind of transcendent tendencies and troubles, but also in his or her pursuits, in the pursuits of their life, in the positive things. A transcendent Christian doesn't just talk about great spiritual experiences. They don't just listen about great spiritual experiences. They experience them. Now, I know we all love great stories, and one of the places to tell great stories is from the pulpit. You've probably sat out there Sunday from time to time and heard us talk about uh, someone from the past and their tremendous courage to live for Christ. Martin Luther nailing his 99 theses, Joni Erickson rising above her paralysis and all those things. And you think about these great stories of people who've given away their life and done great things for the kingdom. But I want you to know, as much as those inspire us and move us in sermons, and oftentimes we sit there and go, man, I'd love to do something like this. I want you to know you'll never get there except through Gethsemane. You'll never get there. Because to get there, you have to leave something behind. And you have to live for something bigger than yourself. One of the great joys of being in a body like fellowship is that many people here do move from just hearing about great stories of God's kingdom to being a good story about Christ and His kingdom. They have found challenges worth living for that's bigger than their convenience and bigger than their comfort and bigger than just getting ahead from the crowd and having more things or the usual. No, in Christ they found that God has led them to do the unusual. I want to give two of those stories real briefly. First of all, just in a young married couples, Jimmy and, and Rachel Servillo. They're a young married couple in our church. A number of you know them. And I talked to Jimmy this week because of a story Bill Wellens relayed to me. Five years ago, Jimmy went down in the summer youth program at STEP and served in the STEP ministry down there. And while he was there, he met two young black boys by the name of Corey and Jermaine. 
And when he met these young men, as he went through this program, there was something in his heart that pulled him towards these two young men so as not to leave them when that short program ended. He saw they needed a role model. They needed a sense of family. They needed a sense of community. So Jimmy did the unusual and Jimmy did the uncomfortable. He decided to stick with Jermaine and Corey while others went back to the usual. He took them through the Friendship Club program at STEP. Then a year later, he took them through the Discipleship program at STEP. And then he became a mentor to these boys as they moved from junior high school into high school. Five years have now passed, and in the process, Jimmy married Rachel. They've had children of their own. Their time has gotten shorter and more tense, and it would be easy in that kind of situation to let these boys go. But Jimmy and Rachel have done the unusual. They've invited these two young men into their family. They celebrate Christmas together. They celebrate birthdays together. These boys join their families on all kinds of occasions. They come over and spend the night with them. They attend church here with them. Jimmy coaches their basketball team at the Y, the boys club. And why does he do that? See, it's a great story, but it's a living story right within our church. I believe he does so because he has found a will that goes beyond his own will. And in that will is a lot of sacrifice and rearranging of priorities and rearranging of time schedules. But it takes us to higher ground. Now, there are a number of you who are going, boy, I'd like to do something like that with my life just in telling that story, right? Well, maybe. That's the real question. That's the question of Mark 14. Well, maybe, because you won't find a life like that just saying, I'll do it. You'll only find that kind of life and the will for follow through by going to God the way Jesus went to God with a clear sense of what the will was, but not sure he could follow through and wrestling it through until you decide that it's worth living at that level and believing it and leaving out of that situation with follow through and a resolve to see it done. Otherwise, you'll never get there. It'll just always be on your wish list. I want to tell you about another couple, an older, older couple compared to Jimmy and Rachel, and that's Pat and Helen DeBose. Some of you know Pat and Helen. They've just gotten back from Honduras with a group from our church, but Pat has a good job as a consulting forester. Helen is the mother of three kids with one on the way, and life is good. Life is good. If life's so good, then why are they giving all of that up and moving to Honduras? a country that's not even considered a third world country. It's called a fourth world country because it's so impoverished. How could they do that and turn their life that way? It's because they've connected with a will beyond their own. Pat has been captured with a vision in Honduras to be a project manager for a missions agency that connects medical personnel with the poor and the needy and hopefully to establish a family-style orphanage that's so greatly needed in that country. Now, all that sounds great on paper, doesn't it? But it means leaving Little Rock. It means leaving their home and leaving friends and learning a new language and adjusting to a new culture. And I know for Helen... All of that can just seem too much 
especially when you're pregnant with your fourth child, the challenge of it all, the timing of it all, that is until it was all brought into her Gethsemane. She wrestled it through and thought it through, and she met a will that's bigger than her comfort and her friends and her city and her neighborhood and even her family. As she said, she heard from God in her spirit, and in that transcendent movement moment, she moved to be re- being, from being reluctant about God's will to excited about it. Now, some of you are thinking, because you're in boring jobs, you're thinking, yeah, it'd be great, you know, just to sell it all and move to Honduras. Right? Well, maybe. Maybe. But you won't find the will hoping for it. And you won't find the will to do anything radical for the kingdom thinking you can do it. You will only find it and you will only find the follow through by wrestling through it with, a, with another person who's bigger than you, who's got a kingdom greater than you and a cause worthy of you. It's the only way you'll ever get there. I want you to look at Roman numeral four as I close. Kind of a key statement here. For a transcendent life, everyone here must pass through Gethsemane. I want you to know it's not a historical place. No, it is a historical place. It's not just a historical place. Gethsemane is a spiritual passageway for every Christian here through which a Christian must go if he or she is to accomplish the higher calling of God on your life. There are good things to taste on this side of Gethsemane about the kingdom of God, but the best things are on the other side of the garden in which you have to give up your will, your rights, your comfort, your trouble, your priorities for a cause and a kingdom and a will that's greater than you. That's the only way you'll get there. If you're a bored businessman and you want to know now that you've made all that money, well, what's my purpose now? What more in life is there for me I want you to know God has an answer, but you must go to Gethsemane to get it. If you're in a crisis of life and you'd like to do more than just complain about the aches and pains in your life or about the troubled marriage you're dealing with, if you would like to go to higher ground, you can. But you have to go through Gethsemane to get it. For every believer in this room, there is a life that's fuller and more meaningful than the one you're presently experience. It's a transcendent life connected to God's will and God's purposes, a life that makes an eternal difference. Perhaps there's been moments during a preaching session or a worship service or a community group study where you've sensed that calling on your life, but it scared the devil out of you. You think, I couldn't do that. I couldn't give up that. I couldn't go there. I couldn't take on that commitment. You, you, you hear it periodically brought up in the services about needs or, or goals or what God's doing in the community and things others are doing, and you, you, you feel yourself being pulled that direction, but the world pulls you back. If you want to get there, 
If you want to get to the best of God's kingdom, you have to go to Gethsemane. And you have to wrestle it through. There is a full and meaningful life for everyone here, but you can't will it to happen. Only in Gethsemane, in the mystery of prayer and wrestling with a will greater than your own, will you find the courage to do what beforehand you could not. Let me ask you, have you been there? Have you been there? Have you been to Gethsemane with your life where you can say after a time of wrestling with yourself and in looking to yourself where you finally come to a moment, a cataclysmic moment, but a wonderful moment where you can come out saying, not my will, but thine be done. And you abandon yourself to that will. Have you been there yet? I want you to know my whole point this morning is this. Until you do, the best part of God's will and God's life for you will elude you. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we close the session of teaching, there are probably a number of people here who are thinking of circumstances. I really believe this, that are thinking of circumstances right now that they have felt your movement on. Maybe it's in regard to their marriage. Maybe it's in regard to a calling. Maybe it's in regard to a standard they need to hold, but they felt that tug of your spirit, that direction. And they get motivated from time to time to be there, but they've never gotten there on their own. This moment, I pray, Lord, that you would come close to them and make them aware that until they wrestle with you, until they meet you, until they can believe you, they'll never get to that place that you want them. Lord, help us to think on these things so that we might finish our life thinking big, thinking glory, thinking eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.